Hey there, and welcome to the Introverted Entrepreneur Podcast. My name is Denise Lee, and I'm a life coach specializing in traumas and addictions. And today I'm going to be talking about mental health and specifically how can we find the solutions, finding the help when we are just struggling and just trying to keep our head above water. And to really illustrate this point, I brought in with me Ruth Panyarski, and she wrote a beautiful memoir illustrating over 30 plus years of psychotic episodes. But underneath all of that was a story of resilience, advocacy, and understanding that there are solutions. So if you're interested in learning about Ruth's story, but more importantly, learning to learn to love yourself, this is an episode worth listening to. And if you haven't done so already, make sure you hit that follow subscribe button. That way, as soon as I drop a new episode, which is usually on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, you'll be able to receive it. And lastly, if you haven't done so already too, please follow me on Twitter, x at Denise G. Lee, and learn more about me and my work at DeniseGLee.com. With that all being said, let's get into the conversation. Hey, Ruth, how are you doing today? Good. Hold on one sec. I just want to Clear my screen here for a minute. Okay, good. I'm doing good. Hey, you know, I've read a lot of memoirs recently, but your your memoir literally put tears to my eye um, on a lot of levels, not just because you were trying so hard to be a good girl, and it just seemed as if things were just mounting again and again, but you were trying to hold on to your identity in the midst of so many psychotic episodes. And I don't think I've ever met anyone who's had 30 plus years of psychotic episodes and lived to tell the tale. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and it so was also, it was very good for me to write this book because. I was able to look at myself objectively, sort of like through a third eye. And that kind of helped me too through my process of healing. So the the beginning of your book starts off in the most like climatic scene. You're at this party and somebody offers you a brownie and it just jump starts so much tribulations. And why did you start off with that part because I mean there's so many other segments of your life that we and we're going to talk about that but like why why that scene okay well that scene um initiated my series of breakdowns after that and I want to add I innocently ingested that brownie cake which was laced with PCP or known as angel dust and I, I and at that point, it just triggered all of these nervous breakdowns. However, before that, two years before that, in my sophomore year, at an architecture program that I was enrolled in, um, a group of students and myself, we used to smoke marijuana at little parties. And one night I smoked so much, I blacked out. I had like a comatose for four hours. And then when I woke up, I said, you know what? I'm not going to do this anymore. However, what it left me with, I'll tell you the reason why I'm telling you this, 
is that it left me depressed, low self-esteem, very difficult to do my schoolwork, very goalless and just passive in life. And that lingered on until that day that I ate ingested the angel dust. So I had like a predisposition to what triggered my nervous breakdowns. The, the whole thing culminated into a psychotic episode. From the outside looking in, they would think you're living a privileged life. You know, you have well-to-do or, you know, supportive parents. You're you're not living in the hood. You're, no. uh, you were trying to be a good Jewish girl. And you weren't able to obviously finish immediately after college, immediately after that incident, the, the Brownie incident. And it, accumulated to lots of things. And I want to ask about the relationship between yourself and your father, because it seemed like there was a common theme of you had a psychotic episode, your dad came and bailed you out. You had a psychotic episode, your dad bailed you out. Yeah. Um, yeah, it, it, my father, my father's personality is he was very tenacious. And he would never give up. So because he had that in his personality, he was able to help me every time I went through a psychotic episode. But early on in life, um, I really didn't have that close a relationship early on in my life with my father. He was always very busy doing activities. You know, he's involved with the school education system in the public schools. He was involved with his synagogue. He, he was very involved and I didn't really get to do that many close-up things with my father. Um, so like one-on-one, -on -one, so to speak. And I think later on, I think he regretted that. And so he was really there for me later on in my life when I was in my twenties and, and early thirties, really in my twenties, he was there. He, he just, and his personality, as I said, again, he we would never give up. And I think that I inherited that from him, that like tenacious, never, ever giving up, trying to seek a normal life. So that's he was there. And he was there in, in, in so many dark seasons. I'm on page 13 of your book. My father stayed awake all night to ensure I didn't run away again. We had one tender moment when I told my father that I had really made a mess of things. I reached out of my psychotic dungeon briefly, then flipped back into delusions, imagining I was Jesus and going to be persecuted by millions of earthlings. My mind raced with uncontrollable, punitive thoughts, keeping me from falling into a deep slumber. Instead, I laid frozen on the bed in a panicky, motionless state of fear, watching the reflections of headlights on the wall across my bed. There's more, uh, but I just wanted to stop right there. I, I, I can't imagine just being on the state of lucidity, like you're aware, but you're not aware of what's going on, even when you're trying to be comforted by the people that love you the most. Yes, 
Absolutely. And you know, my, my, I just, when I look back, my father was so tenacious. And from that moment after that night that I felt like I was being persecuted, the next day we left the college in the Northern town and left for Long Island to see a psychiatrist. My first, first time seeing a psychiatrist. And he just guarded me in the car all the way down to Long Island, all the way down the highway, afraid that I was going to jump out of the car. Very, very frightening. And I wrote in the book, I said, I think that was one of his worst experiences because since World War II, he was a, a vet and a rewarded veter veteran in World War II. And I write in the book that this was one of a moment that matched the risk-taking, death-taking, death-defying World War II that he had been in. So, And that, that really impacted them. And uh, I want to continue talking about your parents and the, how their personality impacted you was um, page 17. My parents and I communicated sparsely. They came from households where few nurturing words were expressed and were unaware of the pitfalls of our developing modern world in 1977. Sexual liberation and women in the workforce were on the horizon. Mom was a traditional woman, unable to be a role model for my ambitions of becoming an architect in a male-dominated field. She had many talents, including an acumen for designing clothes and a beautiful singing voice. And she was an accomplished violinist, but she chose to be a housewife and devote her time to family. And when now we're going to the section where you're actually uh, receiving care. Um, and you say, my mother did not hug me. This was not her style. She held herself together and underneath an iron facade, she hid her concern about the journey ahead. She wisely structured the days around meals and art projects. I don't, people need to read the book to understand this, but your mother was never really there. She was there, but she was never really there. He had a difficult time coping with the seriousness of my psychosis and illness. And, you know, she loved me very much, but she just, you know, couldn't handle it. And um, she did the best she could under the circumstances. And she did help me after certain psychotic episodes. She helped me and she was there. She didn't abandon me. But on the other hand, she was really not a nurturing kind of per mother. You know, like some mothers are very hug oriented. They'll stay up 24 hours to be with you, to make sure you're okay. They'll bend over backwards. And my mother wasn't that. She she just wasn't that because I don't think underneath she had a hard time handling what was going on. And, um, but she she did her best. You know, I don't falter for that. and. Also, it's also generational. I think her mother was very critical of her and she didn't have that nurturing from her own mother. So the mold was there and it wasn't broken between the generations. And for me, when I had my children, I, I went and I broke the mold deliberately. I was more nurturing to my children, much more. And I would stay up 24 hours to see if they're okay. So 
we can break that. I mean, I'm a mother myself and my mother was, wasn't nurturing at all. I think she was haunted by her own, her own inner demons. And the fact that you were able to break that generational chain is remarkable considering everything that you experienced. Yes, absolutely. So remarkably, you got your degree. Remarkably. Yes. Remarkably. Seven years. Never gave up. Never, and ever gave up. So you're a draftsman. Okay. And I I want to touch about the underachieving part of you. Um that yes. I could I could totally relate with because I myself was an underachiever because I was just trying so hard just to fit into society. I, I thought just not breaking down was an achievement within itself. But anyway, enough about me. Let me go into your story. So you're hired. Um, meanwhile, a prestigious architectural firm hired me as a draftsman. The firm was in a small town near the Long Island Sound. My seven years of education finally led me to employment in the architectural field. My assignments included simple drafting tests, such as designing title pages for several projects. I got bored quickly and wanted more challenging work. I engaged in frequent conversations with an ambitious draftsman, Charles, who sat adjacent to my desk. And there was this fantasy that perhaps there could be a little bit more, but that's neither here nor there. But this idea is that you wanted prestige and power. And even though you admitted you didn't want to work. I, yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll comment on that. Um, Underneath me, I really wanted to find my passion and develop as an architect. I wanted to do that, but I just couldn't get past it. And what happens in the politics in an architect firm, you start very small on non-sequential things uh, and uh, tasks, and then you develop that. And you know you work for a number of months before you get another task that's a little bit more challenging. I didn't get to that point. I didn't realize that point. I didn't realize that I had to go through the ladder and slowly climb to perhaps being a designer like five years down the road. On the other hand, also, I did not have a mentor. My mother was not an example. My father didn't realize that I really needed to talk and plan my uh, my way of getting, you know, more challenging work. And not going in circles, just keep getting very, very um, beginner jobs. And I didn't realize that I had to, you know, really just be very patient and diligent and do each task perfectly or as perfectly as I could. Didn't have that. And I did not have that passion. The passion wasn't there. It, it had to be developed. And I just was at the same level with a lot of jobs that I had that I had procured. So, you know, for for seven years, it, you know, in, in that period of time, I really just it was going in circles. I was going in circles. I think what's ironic is the relationship that you had with your supposed psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Samuels. And 
I see this with a lot of people that they think they're hiring the best. They think they're hiring someone who's renowned. And, and I don't, I, I know you can tell, I want you to tell your story because it's not mine, but this idea of your family thought they were doing good for you, but the person that was considered was supposed to be helping you with quote unquote Freudian tactics was not helping at all. No, and uh, I have to intervene now because it back. This was back now. We're still in 1977, 1978. Psychiatry and therapy was really not that accepted or not a norm in society as it is maybe today. In a way, it's more open today. It's more stigmatized back then, so it was hush, and the therapies were not developed and not varied as much as they are today. So the doctor I had followed the uh, Freudian principles where, you know, you would spout off and free associate your mind and your dreams and he would be silent, just listening, maybe taking notes, which he did not do. And he did not offer any common sense or experiences uh, through his lens. So I really didn't have any kind of um, rapport with him um, in that sense that he would offer some common sense into what I was doing. I had, my life was overstimulated, overdone, trying to find my way, trying to find a path through this madness. And he really didn't help. And on another note, he also isolated me from my parents. He said, you have to develop an independent support system other than your parents, which at that point in 1977, 1978, I mean, yeah. And at that point, I really needed my parents. I, you know, I, I wasn't really sharing anything with my acquaintance friends. I kept my breakdowns, my periodic breakdowns, a secret as much as I could. So I was really isolated and alone, you know, not realizing how alone I was. And um, and that carried on for about a period of seven years. Which culminated, I won't take it culminated in a tragic accident, which maybe we'll get into later. Oh, we're definitely going to get into that. I, I I want to give people the picture of what was going on with your life. And I want to talk about when you were in Paris. I I, I don't even know how to explain that. Um I just kept reading through that section again and again. Uh and wondering how in the world you survived, really, honestly. Um, they, they yeah, were so... I survived that without any episodes at all. And yeah. part of that, I would, I would uh, add to that, is that I was in an apartment. I was renting an apartment in a Lebanese mother woman's apartment. She had a space for me, a room for me to rent, and she was sort of inadvertently a support system for me. I would talk to her and she taught me French and um, she was very warm. Her husband who uh, was deceased, but he was an artist and he kept, she kept all her, his paintings in the closet in the kitchen. So that was kind of like very warm and tender to me. So I, I attribute my surviving Paris for six weeks um, to her, you know, I don't know where she is today, but she was very helpful. 
um, for me. She was there. I would I would talk with her all the time. So that got me through. Um, you also had an uh, interesting experience when you were in Athens as well. I, I don't know if you want to talk about that briefly, but um, it, Paris hit me a little bit stronger than Athens. Well, Athens, I was on a tour of the inland Greece, uh, uh, looking at their um, their ancient uh, sites. And then for seven days, I was one of the few Americans on the bus tour. I was very stressed out, very alone, very isolated. And it was a very tedious tour of the ancient ruins. Very tedious. Every day would be in a different ruin. And all of them seemed like they were all the same after a while. It was a, it was very repetitive. And I just didn't sleep. I couldn't sleep. And and for six nights, I I couldn't sleep. I didn't wash. I didn't change my clothes. And then the seventh day, we uh, convened and we ended up in Athens at the end of the tour. And that night, I just couldn't sleep. So I walked the city of Athens aimlessly. And luckily, a soldier had picked me up. He asked me if I had a light for his cigarette. And I said, no, but he goes, let me walk you around Athens. So all night from midnight till dawn, I I aimlessly, well, I walked all around Athens with this um, soldier. And I think he saved my life because it's not a safe city to be in from midnight till dawn wandering around. Then the following morning, I packed my things. I went to the airport and I said to the attendant, I'm not well, I'm sick. I must have the next plane to New York. And at that time, they were able to accommodate me. And I got on the plane. Again, I had no sleep. I looked like a horrible. I sat next to a young woman and her father was in the aisle of, um, in the seat ahead of us. And I didn't say a word. And they wanted me to talk and I just couldn't say anything. And then I had a psychotic episode where I thought the gentleman in back of me was talking about me in a bad way. I got up and I slapped him in the face. And then I ran up to first class. It was a two-story plane. And I sat there for the remainder of the flight. And then and everybody thought I was high on heroin or something. They couldn't understand that I was having a breakdown. The transportation police came when everybody else left the plane and they took me to the transportation police uh, precinct at the airport. And then my father came and then he took me to the psychiatrist. And that was the, uh, but you know what? I didn't need to be hospitalized. I was able to regain my sleep very slowly. And, uh, but I was, I was lucky I survived that really. I did a query on your book about how many times you suffered from lack of sleep and it was at least 45 times. Wow. Yeah. That, that lack of sleep is one of the first things that's a sign for me and probably for many people that they're not going to be doing well. They're going to have some sort of breakdown, some sort. Everybody has a breakdown in different ways, but no sleep can really do it to you. Really, really. 
I swear each chapter in your book is like an hour discussion within itself. <laughs> There's yeah. just a lot. There's just a lot. I I, I want to make sure that people who are listening understand that your story there's lessons within each chapter and i one of the the things that really i just came back again and again was reading about morty and i'm going to i'm on page 122 of your book one day i met the owner oh wait let me pause back let me rewind and this is after uh, your dog mingling can go live back with you again. And so I want to make sure that on the section that, okay. So you're, you're, you're in your, you're, you're, you're founding a, a parking spot and you see this beautiful yellow Porsche, right? And you're like, oh, there's a man. He, he seemed a little older, right? With tawny complexion and unimpressive brown eyes. Oh. And yeah, that's what you said. His hair was slightly gray, but he was also balding. From the moment we encountered each other, I knew an insipid relationship would incur. He was available and made it known. I was impatient in finding Mr. Wright. So I settled on this man whose chemistry only mildly attracted me. His name was Morty, which suited his bland personality. He even had a comb over. I gradually learned that Morty incessantly sought the job. He wanted a perfect situation, which caused him to experience long stretches of unemployment. I'm just going to stop right there and say that he was a leech. Yes. He was self-centered. There are so many vignettes about your relationship with Morty, especially after your accident. We're going to get into the accident. But I want people to understand as they're listening to you that not only you're suffering through psychotic episodes, you're dealing with a leech of a person. Yes, unfortunately, um, he didn't have a job. So he, we lived together. And for him, it was a good situation until he found a job, which he didn't for the duration that I was with him. And um, he witnessed uh, a breakdown of mine, and he just it, he just was prejudiced to me, even though he relied on me for his living situation and companionship, he was I was stigmatized. And subliminally, he just didn't accept me and didn't treat me as a loving boyfriend. And I settled because I just drastically did not want to live alone. And, um, but eventually it, eventually I got rid of him, you know, my mother helped me too with that. <laughs> we, yeah. I want to, I want people to, to, to read the book. Cause I don't want to talk, I don't want to give that one away. Cause that was fun. I, I was, I, I was actually cheering it. Go girl. <laughs> yeah. My mother helped me with it. We put his furniture in storage because he wouldn't move his furniture out of my apartment. So she and I put it in storage. Yeah. Remarkably, he still lingered uh, in your life even after that. Yes, he did. He did. Yeah. After my tragic, tragic psychotic episode. Yes. 
he still, you know, wanted to be intimate regardless of what I what shape I was in. And uh, he uh, borrowed my car when I was in the hospital with this tragic accident. And he borrowed my apartment. I mean, I really helped him out. And uh, but he didn't appreciate it in a, in a way. He didn't show his appreciation that I helped him out. Drained your bank account. It was. It... Yeah, it, yeah. It, we got to the point where we had a joint bank account and I we had I had three thousand and he had three thousand. And because I wasn't there, he spent it or whatever he did, he hoarded it. And then a couple of years later, when I was married and I was feeling confident in myself, I contacted him and I said, please give me back my $3,000. He says, you can't prove that. You can't prove it. I said, I said, Morty, you're a lawyer and I will take you to small claims court and you can lie in front of the judge. You could risk your bar, your, uh, your candidacy in law and he, then he goes okay I'll I'll pay you 1500 <laughs> so I took the 1500 and I ended it there wow wow I mean I, I know there's probably people who are listening who have been in relationships for years if not decades where they were literally being sucked dry emotionally sexually financially and they may not feel like they can get out, but you got out. So that's, you know what? It became a norm. The way you yeah. felt about yourself, unappreciated, stigmatized, depressed, low self-esteem, that became, that becomes a norm of life. And you just think that, well, that's your norm and you're not going to get out of it. It just becomes what you expect of yourself and expect from your partner or boyfriend or, you know, husband. So we find ourselves in situations, a lot of people do find themselves in situations like that. We don't want to, it's so funny. There are so many songs that talk oh, about, yes. yeah. So we've normalized it. We kind of sing to it, but those are really sad songs. Yes. Um, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So I want to paint a scene. I know that, you know, you had a very, very close dependent relationship with your parents and you, Dr. Samuels didn't think that was a, he, he, he wanted you to be more independent. And so your parents are going for a, a little vacation away and you're not sleeping for several days. You're having some on top of that. There's, if I correct me if I'm wrong, you're having problems with the medication that you're using. And you wanted to see, you wanted to get in contact with your parents. You, 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 and there was, it starts the accumulation of a breakdown. And I'm going to read this section that started the accident, that, that triggered the accident. And you're, and meanwhile, there's noises from your neighbors. It was just, it was just a hot mess. I returned to my bed once again, and I heard all, only the noise coming from the next door. It reminded me that I would be persecuted, crucified, destroyed at any moment. I had to escape from this cruel world. And then I had a brilliant idea. I gathered my flannel bed sheet and tied the ends together to form a long rope. 
I tied one end of the rope around my dining room table and climbed out of the window while gripping the sheet and attempting to rappel down the exterior wall. When I was in high school, I fell from a 12-foot stone wall at the neighborhood beach and survived without injury. I felt I was invisible to any mishap, and I thought dad would be proud of me for rappelling down a 30-foot wall. The pull of gravity was so strong. I couldn't plant my feet against the wall to repel. I screamed for help as my grip began to slip, and I instantly knew I was going to fall 30 feet. My neighbor heard my screams for help and called the police. No one could save me from falling through. I continued to scream and prayed I would survive my imminent fall. As I dangled from the window, I planned how I would fall. I went down feet first. And then on impact, I rolled to my right to protect my head from hitting the pavement and lessen the force on my feet and legs. Let me tell you what led up to that. I had signed up for a psychiatric workshop and it was confrontational between the participants. I was led to believe when I signed up for it and interviewed for it, that it was going to be lectures on how to be assert yourself and, you know, peaceful information. But no, that wasn't it at all. So I had been very stressed out uh, over this. I really wasn't into being con confrontational psychological exercises. So I began to lose my sleep and the sleep compounded itself, the lack of sleep. And then on on let's say the fifth or sixth day without sleep, I barged into my psychiatrist's office, Dr. Samuels, and I told him I'm not well. I just couldn't convey to him that I had five or six nights without sleep. I couldn't get that into his mind and saying to him, I'm struggling. I'm this is dangerous. It, it just didn't, it he didn't he what he said was he had other crisis patients. And then he said, please return on your designated time, which is two days hence from then. And and then the following day is when I had the tragic accident. Not like I didn't try to get help. Yeah. I tried. Yeah. But it just, I couldn't succeed. I just couldn't break through the wall of Dr. Samuels. Ironically, it was jumping and almost dying that triggered meeting George, who you dedicate yes. this book to. Yes, George was a, he was a Quaker. He was a veteran of World War II. He was an experienced survivor and he had a lot of common sense. And he would talk to me and say, Ruth, you've got to limit the stimulus in your life. You do too much at once. Too many friends, too much. Just limit your 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 stimulus. He said it was the kiss principle. Keep it simple, stupid. And you know, at that point, you know, I as I said, I never gave up with all my episodes. I had tons of acquaintances, friends, tons of jobs, tons of traveling alone to Europe. He said, and living on the third floor. He says you're not going to live on the third floor anymore. You're not going to travel alone to Europe. You're going to take a day 
day at a time. The other symptoms I had, I used to think 30 years ahead of my time and I would be abandoned into an apocalyptic world. That was part of my uh, insomnia. I couldn't go to sleep because I was afraid I would wake up to a world that was, I was abandoned and, and I would wake up to a violent wilderness. So that kept me from sleeping also, compounding itself. But he he, he wrote essays on in, in how to achieve a good night's sleep, vitamin regimen, healthy relationships, how to invest your money conservatively, and et cetera. He would write all these common sense essays, and he would give them to me to read. And it helped. It definitely helped. He added common sense into my life. And he knew symptoms. He says, are you, he always asked me, are you sleeping? How are you sleeping? How are you feeling? How are you dealing with what you're, you know, what you're involved in? And then, uh, I, so I met him in 1984. And then in the book, three years later, 1987, I had met my husband, Mr. Wright. That, that's a very fun story. and. I, in a way, I, I wonder if he, you were his patient zero, <laughs> um, being a, a, a psychiatrist of, of, of all things. Oh all yeah. Things. Of all things. I met my husband. He said he was, he was going to go into a, uh, he studied in Italy for eight years and he came back to live with his parents a little bit because he wanted to reestablish himself in America. And I had met him through a dating service. And um, yeah, so we met and he told me that he was going to do a residency in psychiatry. And I, at that point, I was interested in being a social worker because I was had so much to share with a potential client, patient of what I've been through. And I was on the other side of the door and I, and I know, I know what it is to be hospitalized, to go through episodes, to find the right medication, to find the right doctor. And I learned my limitations. The most important thing of this whole thing is to learn your limitations and accept yourself. So anyway, so I met him and I said, wow, we have a lot in common. And it went from there. And I told him, I think our third or fourth date, I told him all about my episodes, all about what I had gone through. And it didn't phase him. It didn't phase him at all. And I may attribute that to his parents were Holocaust survivors. So, and we talked about that. And I said, you know, and his parents were a little bit older than the norm of, of parental age for our age group. And I, he, he had a lot of empathy and just growing up with parents that had suffered from that and lost their entire family kind of left him uh, unfazed by my situation, to put it simply. I'm in your epilogue because I think it's worth mentioning. Between 1987 and 2010, I suffered from four bipolar episodes and was hospitalized each time. In the 90s, 
a doctor prescribed a new medication, Zyprexa, which proved to be effective in curtailing my cyclic psychosis. It took many years to determine the correct dosage, but once established, a profound stability developed. Yes. Yes. And if you think about it, it took from 1977 to 19, whatever that date was, 1999, took that long to find the right medication. Now, it could be attributed to back in 19, as I said before, 1977, they didn't have many medications. When it came to the 1990s, they had like numerous medications for bipolar and schizophrenia and and, and whatnot down the whole whole line of illness. Many more medications. And they really work. People think, oh, you know, I feel better. I'm not going to go on my medication anymore or that's not going to work. They do work. You have to find the right medication. And I will tell you one thing, which is very, very important. You have to experiment with the medications and you have to experiment with your therapist. If your therapist doesn't work for after three or four or five months, it's not effective and you're not getting any inkling better, then switch, find another therapist. If your medicine's not working in two or three or four months, switch and find another medication. Most people don't know that. It took me 30 odd years to learn that. People don't have to go through 30 years of hell. They can read through your book. Um, And being an advocate for yourself was something that was learned. I mean, I know that your father had that tenacity, but you had to learn it for yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. You're no longer architect. You're an no, artist. Now, also 1988, George suggested I take up painting. Yeah. So I said, you know what? I'm going to take up painting. I left the architecture world. I left the construction world. I left the harsh politics of being in a firm and a male-dominated field at that time. And I went to a more personal journey of artwork and painting. And the discipline or the non-discipline that I followed in architecture influenced me in my artwork that I became very disciplined. Very, very disciplined. The artwork is intricate. It's surreal paintings involving animals and figures and and uh, symbol, all kinds of symbols in them. And it requires a lot of discipline to uh, complete one of my paintings. A lot's involved. The lion, there's a lot of lions in your work. Yeah. 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 Lion to me is grand. I mean, he's the king of the jungle and he's very strong in strength. And and, uh, he's also a mythical figure or a mythical symbol, I should say. And I just, and I I enjoy painting lions. I, I try to pick things that I enjoy painting. It, it shows I could actually visualize myself in some deep w- wilderness experience and surrounded by all the animals. And yeah, we're going to leave links in the show notes below so people can see your artwork because it's worth seeing. And so you've been for, with Richard for 30, 30 Over, how years? It'll, it's 36 years. Wow, 36, 36 years. years. And yeah, you know yeah. what? We met, I'll tell you, we met on February, uh, February 20th. We got engaged 
April something. We married civilly May 28th. And then we had a religious wedding on June 21st. So four months we were married. But let me tell you something. Before I had met him, again, there's a precedent. I had gone out with maybe 15 different men, you know, just dates and everything else. Very few intimate, very few. But I just kept going out. And then I reached a point and I said, you know, I haven't found anybody. I'm going to throw all these 15 men out into the ocean. That was in my book. Throw them all out. I'm going to live my life alone and be happy with myself. And then four months later or three months later, I got a call from my husband, Richard. And that is how I really was able to decipher somebody who was really meant for me. I had gone out with so many men and so many failures that at that point, I was able to see a success. There were always a, a part of you that felt like, oh gosh, I'm just, I'm, 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 I'm not being good in terms of I'm having sex. I'm not really connecting. I'm not really feeling myself and juxtapose against all the mental health issues that you're going. And there was still a glimmer that you were going to find Mr. Wright, despite all of that. It's just amazes. It just amazes me, honestly. Oh yeah. In many years I dated, you know, like from age 18 till 31 or 30, I should say 30. That's when I met Richard. A lot of years yeah, and a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge inadvertently. I I was really touched at how humbling and honest you were about not just the things that you were learning, but how you could have been more clear about, I need help. I, I was thinking about one particular scene where you're, when you're in the airport and you're like, it's like what, like 20 degrees outside. And it was clear you were having a breakdown. Everyone around you knew you were, you were having a breakdown, but you, it's like you couldn't really couldn't really communicate your needs to other people. No, I couldn't, especially to Dr. Samuels. I tried, I tried, but I just couldn't break that wall. Couldn't break the wall. I couldn't. I just couldn't get out of it. I was in this cycle that I just couldn't get out of. And again, I said that, but later on, the medicine, the right medicine really helped me to get out of the cycle, you know, and, yeah. and, and, and doing the art. I mean, even though I did experience four more with my husband, by the way, and I can tell you one thing, my husband is a very seasoned psychiatrist because he lived through four breakdowns. He lived through it. Not many psychiatrists live through breakdowns. They treat patients but they haven't lived what they've lived. So it, it really made him a very seasoned, effective psychiatrist, I might add. He, he seems like a heck of a guy because I know that a lot of men who are warned, hey, I have a history of psychotic episodes. I'm like, awesome, find someone else because it's not going to be me. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. and. Ironically, I help him. I help him along the way. I'm the therapist. 
I've turned into a therapist. Your yeah. your story is just it's just so amazing. You know, we talked about this idea of if you don't feel connected, three to four months, right? With your therapist, find a new one. If you don't feel like you're getting results with your medication, should be at least within two, two, two weeks, two weeks or so. Change up your meds. Advocate for yourself. And I know that if you're someone who's listening or who's going through depression or anxiety or psycho psychotic episodes or whatever, and you just feel as if nobody is listening, keep at it. Ruth, you've just been a, a, a reminder for me, even in those moments when I have felt so despaired, so disconnected from the world, that there is light. You just have to keep pressing forward. Absolutely. You have to press forward until you find a solution. And it is out there for everybody. There's a solution. It really is. It may not come at the point where you think you need it, but it will come eventually. It it, it will come. It will. Just don't give up, though. You can't give up. That's the whole thing. You can't give up, you know, because all during those those psychotic episodes, every six months to a year, in between that time, as I said before, I try to live a normal life. I really tried. And I did. I did. It's just that this cyclic pattern that I was in haunted me for, you know, many years, many, many years. And out of curiosity, I know you've got two children. Did, do you have any grandchildren yet? No, not yet. No, no. My daughter is very successful. She took up accounting. She learned it on her own. She she uh, studied in college anthropolo- uh, biological anthropology. Then she goes, what, what am I going to do with that? So when she got out, she worked as a uh, bookkeeper and then slowly built up to being an accountant. Then she went back to school for accounting. And she's now a senior corporate accountant at a movie production company. So she's, oh, oh. she's really, you know, and she travels all over the place. And my son, he took up uh, tech, computer tech. So he's into that. And he's living in Utah on his own. And my strivation for my children was to make them independent. If they can be independent, that is all that I want, whatever they do. If they can achieve to be independent, that was my goal. And it came true. It did come true. Your book has something for everybody, even if they're not a woman listening. I mean, resilience, pressing through, honesty, self-evaluation. There's just so much to be gleaned from your book. But if there's like any main idea or theme that you want people to glean from our conversation or the book or just anything that comes to your mind, like what would it be? It would be to, well, first of all, never give up. When you're going through, just never give up. And if you're going through something, get somebody, somebody that you can communicate to, to talk to to communicate and talk out whatever irrational thoughts you have, whatever you're thinking, what's bothering you, what are you anxious about, to talk. And I would say keep a journal. If you can, keep a journal of your feelings and what you're going through day to day, day to day, because every day could be different or every day could be the same pattern. 
get to know your patterns. We all have patterns. We all have habits. Evaluate that and see if it's instructive or constructive for your life. And as I said, be very your own advocate if you can be. And also develop a support system, whether it be your therapist, a friend, a clergy person, a professor, a stranger even. Sometimes you could talk more to a stranger and they could listen and, and tell you something. The main and, and that's one of the main things is communication. And another thing is to learn your limitations. We all have limitations. To learn them and to accept yourself. And the finality of the whole thing is to accept yourself. You have to learn to accept yourself. I think that's pretty apt considering the title of your book is Journey of the Self, Memoir of an Artist, because you have really carved a life that is amazing, to be honest, uh, absolutely amazing. Ruth, where can people continue the conversation? How can they find you? And obviously, we're going to leave links in the show notes below, but where can people? where's the best place that people can find you? Well, they can find me on my website and they can email me. I have an email connection. They can do that. Um, I also have another website. I'm not sure if I gave you that. It's, um, it's called battlingmentalillnessalone.com. And on there, you know, you could also have my email and the contact email. You can email me. So. We're going to leave links in the show notes below so people can access you. Ruth, it's just been such a pleasure. I I, I enjoyed obviously reading your book. I enjoyed our conversations. And most importantly, I really am inspired about the idea of no matter how far the scale you have gone, there is still more. And it's just something that I think people need to know, regardless of what season they're in in life, that there is more ahead of them than behind them. And with that being said, thank you so much. If those of you guys who are listening who have enjoyed the conversation, please share it because this, this mental health shouldn't be a solo conversation. We need as many voices speaking into it because when we one person gets well, we all get stronger together. And with that being said, thank you, Ruth. Thank you, everyone who's listening. Please take care of yourselves and know that health and healing is just a thought away. And with that being said, take care and be awesome. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Ruth.